Well, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Durham Book Festival on this actually pretty gloomy and soggy day. Uh, not a very good day at all, but anyway, this afternoon we're going to metaphorically get the fire going, get a cup of coffee, and we're going to curl up with not one but two good books. And uh, we're going to be looking at two novels that have central characters suffering from either a mental illness or a psychological condition which skews the way that they look at the world and those around them. So both books tell the story in the first-person narrative, which gives a very claustrophobic view from the inside. And as their internal worlds start to unravel, we, as the readers, see the danger and experience the central character's mounting anxiety. In Lottie Mogark's book, Kiss Me First, clever and strange Layla undertakes to inhabit the cyber life of charismatic but depressed Tess in the altruistic belief that she's helping Tess to escape from the profound pain of her existence. But as that plan then spectacularly falls apart and the boundaries between the two women blur, we see Layla slowly lose control not only of Tess's life but also of her own. In Matt Haig's book, The Humans, Professor Andrew Martin, a fiendishly intelligent mathematician, has come up with a solution to the world's greatest mathematical problem, and then promptly goes mad. But his psychosis takes the form of believing he is an alien, with no connections or feelings towards anyone in his life, including his wife Isabel and his 15-year-old son Gulliver. The world is as strange to him as it would be to anyone visiting Earth for the first time. But slowly, we discover that the disconnect in Andrew Martin's life has been going on for much longer than he has ever acknowledged. Lottie and uh, Matt, welcome to, to the festival. Um, just before we do some readings and, mm. and we hear about the books, I wanted to ask you, um, what made you both interested in these, in these very sort of um, disturbing states of mental turbulence? Lottie first, perhaps you could... Talk about your main character. Um, yes, uh, as uh, as mentioned, Layla is a um, very literal, uh, solitary, um, unimaginative young woman, and I very much wanted. You could say, I mean, some people have said that she's on the autistic spectrum, and I purposely didn't give her a label because I really wanted her to be more like a child of the internet. Um, I think probably most of us here grew up without the internet, but I, so I'm very interested in the generation who have never known life without it, and I wanted her to exemplify um, those uh, people who just have, have, who maybe don't have much experience of real life, but have learned pretty much all they know through the internet. So, so that's, where, that's where it started from, rather than wanting to tackle a, a mental condition itself. I, it sort of grew out of someone just sitting in their room 16 hours a day and uh, not really feeling the air, proper air on their skin. And she hasn't got much yeah. life support, has she? Because no. her, her mother... Uh, has died, so she hasn't really got anybody around her, has she, who can get her out of the bedroom and yes, <laughs> get her no, away no, from the no, computer exactly. screen. And I, yeah. and I think there are lots, we don't see them because they're <laughs> stuck in their bedrooms, but I think there are quite a lot of people who, who rely on the internet to a huge degree, and I really wanted to explore these, these dark worlds. Now, I know that there'll be some people here who are from uh, book groups who probably read one or, or either of the book, and uh, I run a book group in Newcastle, and we did Lottie's book um, quite recently, and everybody said that uh, they thought that she was, as you say, mm. kind of on the spectrum, mm. that she was on this sort of spectrum of being... I mean, she was quite a strange mm. young woman, mm. wasn't she? So mm. did you... Did you uh, sort of deliberately give her that character trait, or were you, were you trying to 
you know, just say something about these kids who do sit in their bedrooms for 18 hours a day? Um, uh, I wanted her to be... Well, because throughout the course of the book, she, through her relationship with this woman, Tess, um, although they never meet, she really learns about living. I mean, actually quite similar to in, in, the, in Matt's book, but um, learn about the, messy, the messiness of human life. She's very logical, so at first she's kind of appalled by it. But So I wanted her to start from a place where she couldn't really um, understand people's motivations and, like I say, the emotional mess, and, uh, so get, and then get her to a point where she, where she sort of fits into the the real world again. Now, Matt, your character, Andrew Martin, mm. actually, he is a bit of an emotional mess, even before the book opens, yeah. isn't he? And, uh, and when uh. the book does open, um, he's gone completely mad. He, he does think he's an alien, which yeah. sounds really bizarre. If you haven't read this book, you'll be thinking, this sounds very bizarre. But actually, it's done so deftly mm. that you, you absolutely, as a reader, buy into this world that he thinks he is an alien. Yeah, well, it, it, this novel sort of changed so much. The first draft was almost like 50% of it was set in space. It was a proper, <laughs> purely science fiction, fictional book. And it, it sort of slowly became more of a sort of psychological thing, more a, is he mad, is this an alien, you know, what, what, what is going on here? In my head... Um, I always saw this as a sort of fable of sort of madness and depression. Um, but to sort of turn it into a fable, I actually had in my head that he, he was the alien. You know, so he is, he, he, although he was an actual human being um, called Andrew Martin, um, someone, the person, the being pretending to be him actually is this sort of newcomer because that was the easiest way to sort of look at humans with new eyes and that was the whole point of the book and the sort of the perspective of that sort of looking at us as if we're aliens came out because in my 20s I suffered a little bit with depression I had sort of like two or three very bad years and now looking back it, 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 it's sort of like looking back on a breakdown even though I didn't sort of refer to it as that at the time but sort of, you know I suddenly wasn't working the way I had been working you know so um, and this was the very first idea, even though it's not my first book, it was the first novel idea I had. Um, because it, but I didn't have a story or anything, it was just that perspective, which has been done in other ways before, of the ultimate outsider looking at human life. And that's how sort of the depression can make you feel, because you, you feel like normal conversation and the normal world, all, all that suddenly seems very, very trivial and um, alienating. Um, and I thought it'd be fun to turn that into a literal thing of it actually being an alien. And also, um, although that makes it sound quite depressing, I, I no, had—it's not. not depressing at all. I, I had in my head of, of trying to sort of speak to my younger, darker, angrier, more disturbed self, and try and sort of pull them out of that hole, as it were. And um, so, much as I would hate to be branded as a self-help writer. This is sort of my self-help novel in the sense that I'm sort of... It's much better than a self-help novel. <laughs> yeah, but in a, in a sense, you know, it, it's got that slightly instructive 
aspect to it, I suppose. And it's very funny. It is a very, very funny book. There's some fantastic one-liners in there, which maybe we'll talk about later. But before we sort of go on and explore the, the, the themes that we've just been talking about, I wonder, Lottie, could you read from the, the beginning of the book <coughs> and maybe just sort of set it up for anybody yes, who, hasn't, who hasn't read it? Yeah, sure. OK. <laughs> you, you have a I know. You might ask for one later. <laughs> um, so... Layla, my narrator, um, through a shadowy website, comes in contact with this woman, Tess, uh, who is uh, sexy. She's a bit older. She's in her late 30s. Layla's in her early 20s. And charismatic, a kind of the exciting woman, you know, who changes the air in a room when she comes in, and kind of all men fancy. The opposite of Layla in every single way. And together they hatch a plan so that Tess can disappear and kill herself without her friends and family realizing she's gone. Um, it's an audacious plan, and it, yes, it goes horribly wrong. But the, the idea is that Tess will tell her friends and family that she's going to live in Canada to start a whole new life in a very remote island, whereupon she will disappear and Layla will take over the reins of her online life, answering her emails and updating her Facebook page. And no one will realise that Tess has gone for an indefinite period of time. Um, in order to make this work, the two women spend a few months having late-night conversations in which Tess gives Layla all the information she may need to impersonate her, which obviously is like her, really her whole life. Um, and Layla approaches this very methodically. She's a very methodical person, but Tess is very chaotic, so it takes a while to, for her to, for all this information to be passed over. And um, they develop this odd relationship while a sort of teacher-pupil... You know, it's a very strange relationship, these two women who never actually meet but have these very intense conversations on the phone. And um, this bit I'm going to read is the prologue of the book, but it actually takes place about halfway through the story um, during one of these conversations. It was a Friday night, about nine weeks into the project... Tess's voice sounded normal, but I could see that she had been crying and her narrow face was pale. Sorry, I should explain that on Skype, which is why she can see her. Sorry. Um, for the first few minutes of the conversation, she leaned her head back against the wall behind her bed, eyes turned to the ceiling. Then she righted it and looked straight at the camera. Her eyes were as I'd never seen them, both empty and terrified. I'm scared, she said. What about? I asked stupidly. I'm so scared, she said, and burst into tears. She had never cried in front of me. In fact, she had told me she rarely cried. It was one of the things we had in common. And then she sniffed, wiped her eyes at the back of her hand, and said clearly, I can't do it. She looked at me. Then she shrugged and turned her to gaze to the ceiling. Of course you can, I said. I can't do it, she said. She then didn't speak for over a minute and said, uncharacteristically meek, is it okay if we stop for today? Then, without waiting for an answer, she terminated the call. I admit that that particular conversation has replayed in my head several times since. All I can say is, I said what felt right at the time. She was upset and I was comforting her. It seemed entirely natural for Tess to be scared. And when we spoke the next day, she was back to what by that stage was normal, calm, polite, and detached. The incident wasn't mentioned again. Then, a few days later, she looked into the camera and tapped on the lens. 
Do you have everything you need? I had presumed that we had gone communicating right up until the last minute, but I also knew it had to end, so I said, yes, I think so. She nodded as if to herself and looked away. At that moment, knowing I was seeing her for the last time, I felt the sudden, intense rush of adrenaline and something akin to sadness. After quite a long pause, she said, I can't thank you enough, and then, goodbye. She looked into the camera and made a gesture like a salute. Goodbye, I said, and thank you. Why are you thanking me? I don't know, I said. She was looking down at something, her leg or the bed. I stared at her long, flat nose, the curve of her cheekbone, the little eyelash lines around her mouth. And then she looked up, leaned forward and turned off the camera. And that was it, our final conversation. Now, we've talked about Layla, who's obviously the central character mm. in that book, as being sort of maybe on the, on the scale of, mm. of Asperger's. But actually, the other person mm. in the book is Tess, mm. who is profoundly depressed. Mm. Now, on, on paper, Tess has everything, doesn't she? She, yeah. has a, she has a privileged upbringing. She's this wild, you know, sort of abandoned person who, when she walks into the room, the room lights up. But she's... Uh, she wants to commit suicide. Mm. And um, so how difficult was it for you to, to kind of marry those two things together? Did you do research into people who are depressed and, you know, suicidal? I did. I did lots of research. Um, she's, uh, she's bipolar in the book. And I, I mean, I, I, so I, Tess had to be the exact opposite of Layla, which is partly why I've made her, you know, she was this manic person, also the kind of person who thought that something plan like this could actually work so but um in terms of her feeling suicidal i um you know obviously suicide it's a very difficult subject and i didn't want to be glib about it but i did want to examine right to die issues through someone who is apparently you know who's young and physically healthy i thought it's it's i'm very interested in that area sort of people's control over their own deaths. So I thought choosing someone like her, who, when you looked at, you know, seems like she's got everything to live for, um, I thought would, would, anyway, would be an interesting area to explore. And actually, it's very interesting the way that you've done it because the internet means, and that this is the whole kind of premise of the book, that, that Tess can kill herself, mm. but in the eyes of her mother and her friends and former lovers, she doesn't die mm. because she's given this other life mm, mm. through Layla. And, and so that, that sort of extent, so she can, she can disappear without all the other people around her knowing that she's died and feeling desperately sad. So she tries to extend this fiction, really, mm. that she's still alive with the help of Layla. Mm. And, and I, thought that was, I thought that was a tremendously interesting thing because that's what the internet does for us, doesn't it? It can, it can play with whole notions of identity yeah, and who yeah, we are. Of course. And also, I mean, I got the idea because I realised this was back in about 2007 when everyone was on Facebook and it was a new, exciting thing. Um, and I realised <laughs> that I was friends with people on Facebook who I could easily not see again in the flesh, mm. easily, um, and that they might as well not exist. I mean, in, in, for all extents and purposes, um, our relationship would be purely online. So that's, that's where I got the, the idea from. Yeah. Matt, could you do a, a little reading from the beginning of your book as well? Actually, I have to say, I picked up your book, and as soon as I saw the word mathematician, yeah. I shuddered a little bit because uh, I am 
desperately enumerate. And uh, I thought, yeah. my goodness me. But actually, I was really pleased to find out that Andrew Martin was as uh, messed up as the rest of us. I don't, actually, I've much got, more so. <laughs> I've got to try and do a novel that... Does it, like, my last book had vampires in it. So it was like, oh, I don't want to read about vampires. And then <laughs> mathematician. But, but um, yeah, my next book is going to be essentially have nothing to put people off. It's just going to be <laughs> totally well, I'll hold you to <laughs> <laughs> um, Yeah, uh, the preface. This was actually the last thing I wrote, I think. I sort of... I don't write backwards, but I often... The last physical thing you wrote. So you the wrote the physi- book and then you wrote the preface. Yes. How interesting. Why did you do that? Um, because I was worried that the mathematician was going to put it off. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, I... I um, I don't know. I think, I think it's when you totally know the book in your head, that's when you, I feel the most confident to be able to sort of lead people into the story. When, so. And this is just, this isn't actually pure plot. Nothing really happens. It's just a sort of speaking out to fellow aliens. Um, and actually the other well, thing about your book is that the, all the little chapters have got fantastic titles as well. Perhaps you'd read the, the, the title of this. Okay, preface, brackets, analogical hope in the face of overwhelming adversity, which is what writing feels like. <laughs> I know that some of you reading this are convinced humans are a myth, but I am here to state that they do actually exist. For those that don't know, a human is a real bipedal life form of mid-range intelligence living a largely deluded existence on a small, waterlogged planet in a very lonely corner of the universe. That's us, my dear. For the rest of you and those who sent me, humans are in many respects exactly as strange as you'd expect them to be. Certainly it's true that on a first sighting, you'd be appalled by their physical appearance. Their faces alone contain all manner of hideous curiosities. A protuberant central nose, thin skin lips, primitive external auditory organs known as ears, tiny eyes and unfathomably pointless eyebrows. All of which take a long time to mentally absorb and accept. The manners and social customs too are a baffling enigma at first. Their conversation topics are very rarely the things they want to be talking about, and I could write 97 books on body shame and clothing etiquette before you would get even close to understanding them. Oh, and let's not forget the things they do to make themselves happy that actually make them miserable. This is an infinite list. It includes shopping, watching TV, taking the better job, getting the bigger house, writing a semi-autobiographical novel, this one, (laughs) educating their young making their skin look mildly less old and harbouring a vague desire to believe there might be a meaning to it all yes it's all very amusing in a painful kind of way but I have discovered human poetry while on earth one of these poets the very best one her name was Emily Dickinson said this I dwell in possibility so let us humour ourselves and do the same. Let us open our minds entirely, for what you are about to read will need every prejudice you may have to stand aside in the name of understanding. And let us consider this. What if there actually is a meaning to human life? And what if, humour me, life on earth is something not just to fear and to ridicule, but also cherish? What then? Some of you may know what I have done by now, but none of you know the reason. This document, this guide, this account, call it what you will, will make everything clear. I plead with you to read this book with an open mind and to work out yourself the true value of human life. Let there be peace. 
Thanks. Thanks very much for those readings. One of the things that... Uh, there's lots of themes that connect these two books, but one of them that struck me about the main characters is that Layla is doing something that most of us would find pretty repugnant, and that of helping a normal, healthy young woman to commit suicide. And Andrew Martin, uh, as we go along the book, we find out that he's a pretty repellent character, actually. He's been having an affair with one of his younger students. Uh, he's ignored his poor old son, 15 Gulliver, uh, for most of his 15 years and his career as a mathematician is really concerned with his greater glory rather than the advancement of maths. So you've got two pretty mm. difficult <laughs> characters there and yet we like them both. How did you pull that one off? <laughs> oh, I'm very glad you did. Some people still don't like Layla. Really? That been, yes, it's been, uh, that's been put to me. Um, I, I'm, I'm very fond of her. Um, I think she... Well, to me, anyway, I, I, she represents the awkwardness, which I feel still, you know, managed to sort of socialise oneself enough to get by, but, you know, not really understanding the what her friends are talking about and not feeling, not really relating to, to people. And I, like I say, it's just, I feel like she's just an amped up version of... of of that. She's quite an adolescent, isn't she? For all that mm. she's... I think she's probably in her mid-twenties, is that yes, right? Uh, yes, yeah, about 23. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, but she is, she's got that fantastic awkwardness and self-obsession of adolescence, I think. Mm. But at the same time, she doesn't really... Un like, she's very... This website she joins is for um, philosophical debate, so she's not... She's not sort of sh she's kind of self-absorbed, but she's not really shallow. I, I just no, quite, she's I, very intelligent. She, yeah, and mm. she, I, she she sort of longs to engage with something meaningful rather than you know her friends kind of lolling over at Justin Bieber, whatever it is young people <laughs> do these days. But um, so I, I also found that quite endearing, and I hope that's what other people also respond to because she is she is looking you know she's a serious person and she's looking for meaning. She's a very serious person, but the thing is that she is not malevolent, and I mm. think also with Andrew Martin. He's daft and he's misguided, but he's not malevolent. And I think that's the, one of the things that, that links the two characters as well. So it must be, you, you know, maybe easier to engage a reader with, with people who are flawed, because we're all flawed, but who isn't actually wicked or mm. evil, mm. like a you know, complete anti-hero. Did you, did you find that? or did you, I mean, did you like Andrew Martin? Well, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's the two Andrew Martins. So I, I, I feel like I, you know... It was easier for me to make him more likable by, because of a total character transformation, you know. And so, so it was essentially two characters. Um, yeah, so when I you say yeah. character transformation, he's actually going uh, from, from the bad, really, isn't he, to the good? Yes. Actually, he's emerging from the dark into the light throughout the course of the book. Yeah, and I saw it as a father-son story. So it's a sort of redemption story. So even though in my head he's this you know, Andrew Martin as in an alien who's from outer space, I, think, I, I always saw it as a um, sort of redemptive story in a, in a way about um, a father and a son, essentially. Even though it's a sort of love story with the father, uh, with the husband and the wife, I saw it more about um, the sort of parent child relationship about this person and it's probably my guilt of sort of like working from home but still never seeing the people I actually live with in that home we all do but, that yeah and <laughs> you know locking myself in an attic and just you know never seeing human life so it was it was um that and 
I don't know. I think it's, it's, it's more interesting to have flawed characters because, you know, no one wants to read about perfect people. You, you want to see the cracks, don't you? And, yeah. Did you also think, Lottie, that, um, that there's an element of redemption in your book? As well, because in, in Matt's book, the redemp- the, there is a redemptive ele- element between Andrew Martin and his wife and his son. As I say, he moves from the dark into the light. Your character maybe moves from the light into the dark, but at the end, I, I, do, I did feel that there was some redemption between her and herself, if you see what I mean. Mm. Not, not external characters, but she seemed to have uh, a better knowledge of herself at the end, even though she'd been through this really difficult uh, mm, mm. time. Um, I, yes, I think you're right. Um, I'm not sure redemption is the word, because she, uh, she, I think she just learns. You know, be, she was so closed off to, to life, and like I say, the, resistant to the, the grey area. She was extremely black and white, and I think by the end of the book she realises that life lies in the grey areas. Um, I mean, she, she's not completely transformed into a kind of easygoing, you know, imaginative person, but, you know, but she, she understands the point of going out with your friends on a nice autumn day rather than sitting in front of a computer. So it's, she's gradually opening herself up to the world. Now, as I've mentioned before, Matt, your book actually is very, very funny. It's got some fantastic one-liners in it. Um, and also, I, I do really like this central premise of a main character being totally bewildered by what he is seeing around him. He, he, doesn't, he really doesn't recognise anything, uh, any aspect of his life. And there's a, a wonderful piece, I think somewhere in the middle of it, which I'd like you to read, where he goes out to a football match with uh, a very nice, decent, grounded friend of his, Ari, and he doesn't really know what he's doing at this football match, he doesn't really know too much about his life, and he, he's, you know, he's, he's sort of full of bewilderment about it. And it's, a, it's just a very nice kind of vignette about how uh, disconnected he is from everything. Apparently I, or rather Andrew, liked sport, and the sport he liked was football. Luckily for Professor Andrew Martin, the football team he supported was Cambridge United, one of those who successfully avoided the perils and existential trauma of victory. <laughs> to support Cambridge United, I discovered, was to support the idea of failure. To watch a team's feet consistently avoid the spherical earth symbol seemed to frustrate their supporters greatly, but they obviously wouldn't have it any other way. The truth is, you see, however much they would beg to disagree, humans don't actually like to win. Or rather, they like winning for ten seconds, but if they keep on winning, they end up actually having to think about other things like life and death. (laughs) The only thing humans like less than winning is losing, but at least something can be done about that. With absolute winning, there's nothing to be done. They just have to deal with it. Now, I was there at the game to see Cambridge United play against a team called Kettering. I had asked Gulliver if he wanted to come with me so I could keep an eye on him, and he had said with sarcasm, yeah, Dad, you know me so well. So it was just me and Ari. Or to give him his full title, Professor Arimud Muadi Arasaratham. Well, I should know how to pronounce my own name. In your book, you can't pronounce his name. His name's only mentioned that one time. You're a very brave man. I forgot. No, I have read this out before, and normally I skip over that bit because I'm terrible. (laughs) (laughs) Professional to the core. 
As I have said, this was Andrew's closest friend, although I had learnt from Isabel I didn't really have friends as such, more acquaintances. Anyway, Ari was an expert, human definition, on theoretical physics. He was also quite rotund, as if he didn't just want to watch football but become one. So, he said, during a period when Cambridge United didn't have the ball, that is to say, any time during the match, how are things? Things? He stuffed some crisps into his mouth and made no attempt to conceal their fate. You know, I was a bit worried about you. He laughed. It was the laugh human males do to hide emotion. Well, I say worry. It was more mild concern. I say mild concern. It was more wonder if he's done a gnash. What do you mean? He told me what he meant. Apparently, human mathematicians have a habit of going mad. He gave me a list of names, and I nodded along as if they meant something. And then he said, Riemann. Riemann? I heard, you, I heard you weren't eating much, so I was thinking more Godel than Riemann, actually, he said. By Godel, I later learned he meant Kurt Godel, another German mathematician. However, this one's particular psychological quirk was that he had believed everyone was trying to poison his food, so he had stopped eating altogether. By this definition of madness, Ari appeared very sane indeed. I must admit, I've got a lot of sizes jokes. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to correct that in the next one. <laughs> I was just yeah, slobbing out in my attic. <laughs> no, I haven't done one of those. I am eating now, peanut butter sandwiches mainly. He gave me a serious look. I could tell it was serious because he had swallowed and wasn't putting any more food in his mouth. Because, you know, prime numbers are serious, man, some serious shit. They can make you lose it. They're like sirens. They call you in with their isolated beauty, and before you know it, you are in some major mind shit and when I heard about your naked corpus at corpus I thought you were cracking up a bit no I am on the rails I said like a train or a clothes hanger and Isabel everything's fine with you and Isabel yes I said she is my wife and I love her everything is fine fine he frowned at me then he took a moment's glance to see if Cambridge United were anywhere near the ball he seemed relieved to see they weren't really everything's fine I could see he needed more confirmation Till I loved, I never lived. He shook his head and gave a facial expression I can now safely classify as bewilderment. What's that? Shakespeare? Tennyson? Marvel? I shook my head. No, it was Emily Dickinson. I've been reading a lot of her poetry, and also Anne Sexton's, and Walt Whitman too. Poetry seems to say a lot about us, you know, us humans. Emily Dickinson? You're quoting Emily Dickinson at a match? <laughs> yes. I sensed again I was getting the context wrong. Everything here was about context. There was nothing that was right for every occasion. I didn't get it. The air always had oxygen in it wherever you were, but that was pretty much the only consistent thing. What was the big difference that made quoting love poetry inappropriate in this context? I had no idea. I have to say it's very nice and comforting to, for somebody who is inhumate to find out that the mathematicians go mad and the, those of us who read poetry stay sane. <laughs> yeah, well... <laughs> Uh, yeah. I think, I think, uh, yeah. <laughs> now, they, both your characters find uh, props in their life, I guess. And for Layla, she has uh, she uses the internet as a form of controlling her life. I think of of getting of, of getting some control back into it, and she does that by becoming Tess, doesn't she? And having actually a much more interesting life mm. on the internet than she does in her bedroom for sixteen hours of the day. I wondered, Lottie, whether you'd be able to read a, a, a part, maybe from you know somewhere in the middle of the book, sure that would uh, that would talk about the way that she becomes a more interesting person. 
course. Um, this, is, uh, this takes place after checkout, which is the phrase they use for, um, for that moment when Tess slips away and Layla takes over. Um, and uh, we need to know is that Tess uh, has told her friends and family she's going to live in a place called Sointula, which I'm probably pronouncing wrong, but is a uh, tiny island off uh, the coast of Vancouver. This may sound odd, but from the start, Tess's new life in Sointula felt real. It wasn't that I was being imaginative, but rather I'd done so much research on her and the island that every detail was fleshed out. I remember that after logging off Facebook that first day, I lay down on the floor and closed my eyes. The sounds of the street outside fell away, and I was Tess, lying on her guest house bed, jet-lagged and drowsy, thousands of miles from anyone who knew her. She hadn't closed the curtains fully, and the late afternoon sun lit up a slice of the room, warming up the dust in the air. I heard the shriek of gulls from the sea, and the occasional car driving slowly past outside. I knew exactly how the rest of her day would proceed. She would wake from a fitful sleep, pull on her denim shorts, even though the weather wasn't quite warm enough for them, and wander down to the island's main road a few blocks away. She'd go into the grocery store and stand in front of rows of strange Canadian foods and think to herself that soon the foreign brands of bread and soup were going to become familiar and unremarkable. I imagined her walking through the streets, looking through the windows of the clapboard houses, seeing a for rent sign painted on a piece of driftwood outside one of them and wondering whether that could be her new home. Of course, I already knew which flat she was going to rent. I had it all planned and researched, and it wasn't that one. But it was as if the Tess in my mind didn't know that yet. I was imagining it as if Tess was still alive and this was real, like she was a character who really was setting off on this adventure, this voyage into the unknown as if she didn't know that I was responsible for her fate. Those first few weeks of Tess's new life in Sorrentula were the busiest in, the terms of, in terms of the volume of correspondence, but also the most straightforward. All the emails she sent and received were along the same lines. Impressions of the island, exclamation mark-ridden expressions of excitement at seeing an albatross, and, for not-so-close friends who hadn't already heard them, earnest explanations of why she was embarking on this new life. I had spent so long preparing every detail of her new setup, I didn't have to have to create anything. It was just a case of rationing out the information, like taking an exam I knew all the answers to. In, in your book, Layla does take on this much more interesting identity, and she does manipulate lots of, of facts, doesn't she? But actually, the other thing that becomes more apparent in the book as the book goes on is that there are other people who are manipulating facts about their life mm. um, in order to get what they want and mm. to further their own desires. I mean, Layla is something of an innocent abroad, isn't mm. she? Mm. Whereas there is a man in the book called Connor mm. who is... Uh, he has this life on the internet and he fails to mention that he has a wife and family because actually he wants to have sex with one of the characters in the book. Mm. And there's another character called um, Adrian, um, and he is dangerously manipulative, isn't he? Mm. So what you, you seem to be saying in this is that actually we, our, our sense of identity on the internet is very fluid. We can become 
whoever we want to be. Oh, God, yeah, no, um, for sure. I mean, there's so many interesting cases of gross deceptions. And, and in fact, this character, Adrian, there are several men like that who've been, I think there was one guy who was called the nurse of death or something, and he'd been promoting, trying to encourage people to commit suicide in America and, um, and had actually succeeded. And then these photos of him, you know, he was this, this kind of the most unremarkable, they sort of schlubby are. guy. And yet he had managed to convince all these people, you know, that he was this sort of, this godlike figure online. Um, so, and in the case of social networking, I think that dishonesty is kind of promoted, actually. You know, it's, it's uh, disclosure and dishonesty are promoted in, or encouraged in equal measure. So everyone, everyone lies about their lives to some degree pretty much every day, I think, just making themselves seem happier and more successful than they really are. <laughs> and, and yet there are huge emotional splurges on the internet mm. as well, aren't there? You're right. You know, I'm no. not, actually. I, I came off all that. Did you? Did you separate? Because lots of authors say that when they're writing in the business yeah. of writing, they stop reading mm. so that they can, you know, they're not looking around and comparing themselves to other authors. Mm. But did you actually come off the internet? Did you axe the internet in no, order to write I, it so I, you I, I axed Facebook and I, social networking because I found that massively absorbing. Also, um, it, it was making me very unhappy and I didn't realise until I stopped it. It was like being in a bad relationship that you don't really, until you're out of it, you think, what was I doing? I just like the endless comparisons um, and feeling inadequate, even though you know, or I knew that other people were embellishing their lives. I still bought it. It was a strange, I think it's a strange, that's a strange thing about social networking. You still feel bad and that everyone else is having more exciting time, even though you know they could be lying. It's, it's, They're probably sitting in their bedroom. Well, well, mm. well quite. So, um, and now I, when I see the Facebook font, I just, I feel, I feel ill. I can't, I've become massively allergic to it. So. You're, you're nodding, Matt, though, as if you sort of uh, yeah, well, understand I, that. I'm, yeah. I, I, it's very unhealthy, but I'm actively making myself unhealthy by, you know, being on Facebook and Twitter. You're on Facebook and yeah, Twitter. Yeah, because you that thing. I, I, I sort of justify it to myself that it's, I, I feel it's had some sort of tangible benefit for me career-wise. So not Facebook so much, but Twitter has slightly. But I... I hate it, and I end up hating myself doing it. Right? Like hating, hating the persona that you end up doing. And I, you know, even on Twitter, I will sometimes type something, and I'll send it, and then a minute later, I will delete what I've just said, because I just think, uh, and, and then someone responds to it, because it's still on their timeline. So they're responding to a thing that doesn't actually exist that you've... And then you're trying to sort of back out of a conversation that you've started. And I just... It is, like Lottie says, it's just so... It makes you so neurotic because you're seeing the best bits of other people's lives. The bits, you know, they edit out everything else. And even if they're being sort of self-deprecating, it's still part of this persona. And... Um, yeah, I, th I think generally it's unhealthy. I think for a writer there are benefits because it, it cuts, you, you often feel outside as a writer in your career and um, your name's on the front of a book but most things that happen in your career you're sort of outside of and um, uh, the internet enables you to speak directly to readers and to sort of like, you know um, but also communicate gives, directly. It gives you pretty fertile territory, doesn't it? Because in both your books, the, the main characters have really flimsy <clears throat> ideas of the boundaries between what's real and what's not. 
And that, that's, you know, that is rich scene for any novelist. But because the internet presents you with so many possibilities of manipulation of our own identity, that surely really makes it interesting, doesn't it? I mean, you fully exploited mm. that. Now, and Andrew actually is sort of almost doing this process in reverse. He has no personality. He's totally alienated mm. from everything. And he's actually sort of building up his personality incrementally, isn't he? But, but I mean, do you see that the internet is, you know, really fertile territory? Do you think there's going to be more of this sort of, you know, coming uh, out in, in novelists? Yeah, I mean, it would be interesting. I, I, I use it creatively sometimes to test out titles and stuff. And again, that's a dangerous thing to do because you, if, if you go on what most people say about anything, you'll, you know, you'll end up with the X Factor. <laughs> so you've got to you've got to still maintain your own opinions on, on things but I think it is helpful sometimes to bounce ideas I wondered also with your book because it is it's a very serious book it's about a man who has really spectacularly cracked up mm. whether or not you, you believe the, the sort of alien part of it you buy into that world that he thinks he is an alien and yet it is very funny did you at any point worry that the humour was going to undermine what is a very serious issue of, of mental health? Um, no, because I think it's two sides of the same coin. You know, I, th I think now the trouble is, certainly in the book market, uh, and our love of genres and breaking everything up into literary, commercial, thrillers, um, domestic dramas or whatever. You know, we want to categorise everything. But if you go back, you know, to Shakespeare or whatever, you know, you, you, you put the whole of human life in there. And I remember being actual capital D depressed and um, humour was a sort of weapon that you use with yourself. It might be the darkest humour imaginable, but it, 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 it's a, a sort of way of... Um, belittling the depression itself and to sort of look at it, you know, and humour helps. And humour's the way you get out of tragedy, you know, it's the two, you know, it's like a sort of soft joke at a funeral or something, isn't it? It's therapeutic. So I think um, you know, look at something like Catch-22 that deals with, you know, the horrors of warfare, but it is essentially a comedy because it's looking at the most horrific thing. I think if you look at any sort of horrific thing in enough depth, it almost comes back out the other end into sort of hilarity. It might be um, a dark sort of laughter, but yeah, I think it's always there. Well, one of the things that you, you mention in, in your book is that breakdown is often a breakthrough, and actually that seems to me what your character is doing. He's, he's breaking through the mess that he's made of his life, because he is this mathematician who is concentrating on one thing, mm. the great breakthrough in maths but but it comes at a huge expense doesn't yeah. it he ignores his wife he ignores his son who becomes suicidal yeah. um and actually when he does have this spectacular crack up he sort of breaks through all that barrier and becomes himself yeah much more of himself yeah well it was about you know about how we can lose perspective and it, it's about um finding that perspective again and how it's so easy to get lost in the sort of minutiae of things and to forget that we're this species um, existing alongside other species and 
ants and rhinoceroses and seahorses probably think the world revolves around them and we think the world revolves around us and there might be some woodworm in this room right now over there that are you know, totally thinking that's the most important thing going on in this room. So, you know, it, it, it's all about perspective, isn't it? For both of you, when you wrote the first drafts of your, of your novels uh, and you put them before your publishers, what, what was the reaction? Can you remember? Because, I mean, it, it, you I can know. remember mine. Mine was, what is this? <laughs> <laughs> Which was my wife's reaction as well. So I started to think, OK, second draft. So it was, it was, this was the first draft where 50% yeah. of it was set in space? Yeah. OK. Yeah. That's quite a tricky one to sell. Was yours set in space? Was, was yours set in space? It was, was actually going to be a sci-fi, but my original oh, intention, okay. I, I imagine this future where everyone was outsourcing their their lives yeah. to people in like all these these like Philip K. Dick sort of exactly thing. I had and then I just realized I just didn't have the imagination to write sci-fi and also I realized that it didn't have to you know it could happen now to sort of in a, in a modified way but um no to fully realize a sci-fi world I just oh my god I can't because it's, 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 it's your first novel impressive. as well isn't it Lottie? Um, is it your first novel? It is, yes. It is. Yeah. So did you find, you know, often with people's first novels, authors' first novels, there is a huge amount that you want to put into it. Mm. Huge mm. amount. You know, you've been building up to this for yeah, some time. Yeah, yeah. So did you really have to kind of put the scalpel on it and I really did. pair it I down? did, and, and I had a wonderful agent and a wonderful head. You know, you need other people, essentially, when it, when it comes down to it, because you, you, it's very hard to see it yourself. Um, so, yeah, no, it changed hugely. I, I found my first, well, second or third or an early draft and it was I mean obviously embarrassingly terribly written but also it was just yeah it was very very different you said that uh, audience reactions and we'll be uh, sort of take some questions from the audience mm. in a moment um, some of the audience reactions to uh, at other festivals that you've been doing they really didn't like Layla I, I find that quite surprising I think well a few people I think a few people have a real problem with um with what she what she did what she did but okay. also she's not very she doesn't she doesn't go out of her way to endear herself you know she's not a, a people pleaser um and like i say because she's not a sex she's basically not a sexy character and i think perhaps in contrast with tess who's this so i think some people wanted more of tess um unless you know that they wanted her to be center stage but i feel that people like tess often are center stage and i wanted to give voice to the kind of person who who Conveys you get overlooked and sort of being, you know, live invisibly, and I wanted them to. Yes. Be. Did Did you also feel? I mean, obviously, Layla spends a lot of time in her room, mm. uh, looking at her um, computer and mm. trying to create this other, more interesting life. How was it being locked in a room with Layla for <laughs> <laughs> what must have been a considerable amount of time? Um, I found it um, fascinating because she's, we're extremely different characters. I mean, just in terms of she's really interested in philosophy. I mean, there's lots of echoes of uh, Matt's book. Anyway, and um, she's very logical. I'm neither of those things. And so I had to learn for all the, the comments that she sort of tosses off about, you know, about philosophers, I had to really research them because it just doesn't come naturally at all. So I actually learned quite a lot. That's quite, um, I, found it, I found her quite interesting. And Matt, what about you? What was it like being left in a room with Andrew, mathematically, uh, you know, very, very intelligent well, man, Andrew Martin? I'm not saying you're not a very intelligent man by any stretch of the imagination. <laughs> Well, yeah, was I it did, like I, looking in the mirror? I just had maths GCSE. I didn't, I didn't do maths A level. And so I, I, I was someone who used to believe that, you know, if, if you're an English person, I don't mean nationality. Yes. I mean, if you're a literature person, you're not a maths and science person. But now some of my favourite books are 
physics books or maths books, and I see the beauty in it now, which I didn't at school. I got an F in GCSE science because I was so, you know, uh, just I, I was allergic to it. And now, you know, I read about quantum physics and stuff and, and see the beauty in it and, and love it. But Because um, you quote in the book, I think one of the uh, little quotations halfway through but the book is from Professor Marcus de Sotoy, who is a mathematical yeah. genius... And uh, I wondered whether you talked to any of those people, any of those kind of maths genius, to find out what actually does go on in their heads. I'm, I don't talk to anyone, basically, when I, I'm researching. <laughs> I'm not... I, I'd love to be that sort of, sort of, like, you know, almost, like, journalistic thing of going out. And I do research. Um, there's a site called Wikipedia, which yes, is... I hear it's very good. <laughs> totally reliable. Um, I'd, yeah, I just yeah, copy from that, and um, no, I, I had to. I had to act like I had a lot of mathematical knowledge in this because it's about this theory which um, has just been solved, and it's a real mathematical hypothesis that's never been proven. So I had to oh, do a really lot. Of blanking. Oh, really? Yeah, oh, yeah, see, and if you solve that. it. It, you can get a million dollars just from solving, proving this thing. It's one of the last um, remaining things um, unsolved in mathematics, which if we did know why prime numbers are spaced the way they are, then it would lead to advances in engineering and space travel and possibly even things like medicine and abstract things like that because um, maths sort of underpins... Everything. Uh, yeah, knowledge-wise, yeah. Hmm. There's a, there's a, right at the beginning of the book, it's, it's funny and sad as well because poor old Andrew Martin, when he cracks up, he, um, he runs naked, doesn't he, through yeah. Corpus Christi College in yeah. Cambridge. And one of the characters, uh, I think it's Ari actually, he says, um, Is mathematics less interesting for humans than nudity? And I think your book probably says it is <laughs> because actually the nudity element just keeps coming through not just the physical nudity but actually his psychological nudity as well all the way through the book yeah and I think again going back and using that d word of depression with, with me it wasn't even when I wasn't feeling sad even when my mind still felt different after sort of like recovering it was this sort of mental rawness which I think a lot of writers have, I think, you know, and it can be a healthy thing and it can be an unhealthy thing, but it's just a sort of sensitivity, you know, and, and um, being able to sort of feel things. And I think that's good for a writer, but I also like to choose narrators like that who are suddenly outside of things looking in because um, I think it helps if, you've, if you're writing a first-person book like this to have a new way of seeing us. You see, that's sort of one of the points of writing books is to sort of look at us afresh. I mean, you can never be totally new, but, you know, novel means new, and it's always, you know, trying to come up with those sort of new ways of seeing, I suppose. That first-person narrative thing, mm. did you experiment? Uh, did you immediately go for the first-person narrative? Because it does give you this very intense way of seeing the characters, doesn't it? It really feels very claustrophobic, mm. especially in your novel, mm -hmm. Lottie. You really feel like you're in the bedroom with this girl and in her head. Did you experiment with any other form of, uh, of, of doing Possibly the novel? Possibly very early on, but I, I think I, found, I, I landed on the, the first person pretty, pretty and, quickly. And you too, I guess it really lent itself. Yeah, to well, it. yeah. Somebody thinks they're an alien. There's not really much. It was, yeah, but it was a <laughs> massive. As I say, it was massively edited. I think I chopped out forty-five thousand words <gasps> of the first draft. 
and added 50,000 in. Your wife so must it was, have really so, gone for it then. <laughs> yeah, but it was really fast. It was the fastest thing I've ever written. Really? It was, uh, yeah, um, it was only like two, three months. You wrote that in two, really? three months, even mm. with the additional 45,000 words? Four months, let's say. <laughs> that, you really but... must have not come out of your bedroom yeah, for no, quite no, a long no, time, no. I think. Yeah. Right, well, listen, oh, goodness me, I noticed that time is cracking on, and we've got a few minutes left for um, questions before Lottie and Matt go out and sign some books. So I can just about see... Oh, look, there you are. Um, so has anybody got any questions? We've got a roving mic. There's a lady at the back on the left there. If you would just like to ask your question. No, I don't think... Yes, we can hear you. I think we can um, hear you, yeah. A question for Lottie and a question for Matt. Yeah. Um, Lottie, when Layla is involved with Connor mm. and she becomes virtually a stalker mm. of him um, and you sense how vulnerable she is and socially inept that she thinks he's going to fall in love with her when they meet, mm. um, did you put that in to try and make us feel sorry for her? Um, I think to to humanise her because I, and at the beginning of the book she feels like she doesn't really need other people and she's she is an island and um, and I also wanted to yeah I wanted to give her make her give her access to the world the rest of us or most of us live in um, and like I say this is her first encounter with really strong emotion um so it, it was it was it was partly to humanize it but also i just wanted to explore what it must be like falling in love when you've had no experience of it and you don't you can't read the the cues the rest of us can pick up on this this guy for people who haven't read it there's this guy connor i mean it's, he's clearly a wrong un, i think um and you could tell that but she can't because she just had no other experience of men so um so i wanted to um yes i wanted i wanted to give her a, a journey Question for Matt. Yep. Um, could you explain two things for me? Um, the two deaths in the book, um, the mathematician whose name I can't remember, and Ari, um, are they actually murders or are they just coincidental deaths that he attributes to himself? And second question, the alien at the end, the duplicate alien... Yes. Where does that come from? Is it in his head or...? Right. Um, they are real murders. But, right. yes. But they... Um, there's enough ambiguity there that in the real world they wouldn't... You know, it's just a man having a heart attack. Mm. And um, it, it, it's just subnatural causes. But... Being inside that first-person narrator, as I say, as the alien possessing his body, you know, I, from that perspective, from a perspective of a book, they're real deaths, which potentially risks making him a very unsympathetic, even more unsympathetic character. Um, but again, it's a transformation that happens throughout the book and the change in the way he sees human beings. Um, I hope lets him off the hook a little bit in that he becomes someone completely different. But, you know, yeah. It was, it, and what was the second? Well, the alien at the end of the book. Oh, the alien at the end of the book, yeah. That's an alien. That's obviously. <laughs> obviously. Any other questions? Let's have a look. Who is out there? Yes, there's uh, somebody in the middle of that row. If we just wait for the mic to come over to you. 
It's, it's to Matt, and I really just wanted to clarify about whether the professor actually transforms, which I didn't believe he did. I believe he was replaced by an alien. And because the alien did have supernatural powers of healing, which the professor wouldn't have had. Mm -hmm. So I saw it very much not as a transformation, but as a replacement of him on Earth by the alien from the beginning. Right. When I wrote the first draft, it was very, very clear that he was absolutely 100% an alien. And then as it got second draft, third draft, it, it became sort of more set on Earth and more ambiguous up to a point. But I still had in my head that he was an alien. Yet with ambiguity there, deliberate conscious ambiguity, so that everyone around him would think he's human and that readers would think he's human to, to a possible extent. And, um, but this was what I battled for because that, by saying that, it takes it into being a science fiction book. And, um, you know, there's so many literary prejudices against science fiction. And my editor said, oh, can't it just be an unreliable narrator? I said, no, that's been done. So I, I dug my heels in, and yeah, it's a, it's a fable, essentially. But, but, yeah, go on. Yes. Yeah, it's the E.T. moment. <laughs> <laughs> I think we've got time for one very last quick question. If anybody wants to ask one, can't see anybody, don't be shy. Okay, I'm going to end it there. All right, and it just remains for me to thank you, the audience, for turning up on this filthy day, although the sun might be coming out a little bit now. And, uh, and to thank you, Matt. And no, it's been a pleasure. You, thank you very uh, much. Thank you. And it's been a great thank pleasure. You. And uh, there'll both be sunny books outside. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.